Mandatory hotel quarantine begins in the UK today. And could the collapse of big retailers mean a reinvention of the high street, repurposing many of these spaces? And there's a new box office hit in China. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition, here on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to the late edition here on Monocle 24, coming to you from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Carlotta Rubello. As usual on Mondays, I'm joined by Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, and Monocle 24's culture correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Welcome both back to the show. Andrew, I think we should start by saying happy birthday, isn't it? Monocle is fully into adolescence now. Yeah, 14 years old uh, today. So there's a nice thing, hey? Um can't wait to see what happens next year for the 15th. I think we'll have a big party, hopefully, by then. But yeah, it's it's amazing. Tyler, who obviously is the chairman of our company and one of the, the founders of this business, he sent around a note this morning just kind of recapping a little bit in, in a, a few paragraphs what's happened over 14 years and, and how we, we launched actually in a, a time on the cusp of turbulence. And we've just had our birthday <laughs> well into a long period of turbulence as well. Because when we launched in 2007, then suddenly came the economic crash and there was lots of ducking and diving to keep the business going and, and vibrant and find voice and I think that's what the gang have done here this year as well over the past 12 months you know, all of you everyone in the business has, has, has articulated something about trying to stay positive trying to stay engaged with the world and I think that one of the, the richnesses of, of the story for of why we've we've made it to 14 is uh, you know here I am in a studio with somebody who was born in Madeira or who grew up in Madeira somebody from Brazil you know m- me the the kind of lone UK resident and that's as it should be so we we articulate a story remains global positive about looking over the horizon being opportunity driven and which celebrates every day the the art of coming together so that's what's happened on page and on radio that we haven't retreated into this world of you know uh, it's fine if everyone runs off to the countryside and never sees anyone else ever again we know that that's not sustainable we want to see our friends and our families and keep going so well done to everyone here because you know, I think that's when when we've done well that's what we've articulated well and that's what we'll be doing on our 15th, 16th and many more birthdays to come. Well I for one cannot wait for the party but <laughs> Fernando you're nodding along uh, there with Andrew because I know you have quite a nice story about the first time you ever spotted Monocle, right? No, it's beautiful. I, I, was, I was lucky actually to discover Monocle in its first year before I moved to the UK. I was walking around Sao Paulo and I saw there the newsstand. I had no idea what Monocle was but it was the quality of life issue and, and I do love rankings I have to say. So when I saw I was like what magazine is this? And then I, I read it through you know my English was actually not that great at the time uh, but then I said you know what I want to work here and here I am you know so yeah it was, it was quite a beautiful note I think 14 is a good age to be now I, re- I remember meeting <laughs> Fernando for the first time that's another story but yeah this young guy coming into the studio only into the studio rather into the offices our old offices at Boston Place and uh, after he left, I said, yeah, God, he's keen. We, we, should, we should find something for him to do. We should, we should get him in the business. So, and look at this now. Yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing Monocle in Eastends for a lot of years and just thinking, I really like them, but I want to work in radio. So, you know, I'll just keep reading. And then 
look at this. They launched Monocle 24 and here I am. So <laughs> glad to see you. We're all fans before it even started. Uh, great to have you both in the show today. Let's begin right here uh, in London, uh, where today uh, marks the first day of mandatory hotel quarantines for arrivals from the 33 countries on the UK's red list. Now, for many, the move comes too little too late, as it's safe to say the UK's response to the pandemic hasn't exactly been exemplary so far. Well, earlier we heard from Monocle 24's health and science correspondent, Dr Chris Smith, who explained the current situation in the country. Things have changed. The equation has shifted. Unlike previous lockdowns, where the aim was to drive down the circulation of the virus and hopefully achieve very low levels so we could open things up in some sort of limited way, now we're in a position where, okay, we have a lockdown on, we've got the levels going down, but we've also got a very significant proportion of the most vulnerable people now potentially protected by these vaccines. And that number is going to increase and the resilience of that protection is going to increase. And it's going to do that over time. So therefore, with an eye on that timeline, we need to be thinking, well, where do we want to be? What can we afford to do in terms of loading one end of the seesaw, counterbalanced by that protective effect of the vaccination on the other end of the seesaw, by when? And it's looking likely that probably April time, May time, as the weather improves as well, we'll be in a much sounder, surer position. And I think there'll be a lot more confidence there to start making those sorts of positive steps. That was Monocle 24's health and science correspondent, Dr Chris Smith, speaking to us earlier on the briefing. Uh, Fernando, of course, this hotel quarantine comes at a time that the vaccine rollout, as we were just hearing, is coming out. And, you know, it's two sides of the equation to be balanced, you know, people remaining indoors and the vaccines. But you and I have actually had quite a few conversations about the new penalties introduced, the hotel quarantine. I guess it's safe to say you are not a fan. Yes, it is safe to say this. And, and, and it's quite a difficult one, Carlotta. I have to be really honest here, because if you look uh, among, you know, British citizens, I think the vast majority, you know, they agree with those, you know, tough penalties with with the hotel quarantine. There's something in me that, that, that I do find is a little bit too dr- draconian, but I do understand that they have to do something. Uh, for example, if you come to the UK, you already need a negative test, for example. So they need to kind of have some measures. I'm not against uh, measures in general. I, I just feel a little bit scared because, you know, I see the examples of Australia, New Zealand, you know, clearly they've done well. I mean, it's almost embarrassing even comparing the number of deaths and everything. But I wonder, is it sustainable to almost close the country for such a a long time? I know it's very controversial for some people because some people are just, they're like, of course, we have to be as strict as possible. So, you know, it can be a little bit controversial in that sense. But I don't want to lose our freedoms, but it's just more complex than that. So, yeah, the idea of the hotel... It's, I don't feel entirely comfortable with that, but but I know that a lot of people will disagree with me on that one. I guess the main issue at the moment is not even about the severity of some of these measures, but just when in the game they're coming in, right, Andrew? It's this idea of that, you know, we're nearly a year into this whole process when the UK finally had a bit of a harsher stance. Yeah, and I'm a bit, I'm a bit like Faye, I'm a bit torn between... You know, what you do because we could have shut down i think now we recognize if there'd been a a quicker shutdown it would have been very effective but we also know that in reality if we had then done what happened over the summer and then opened up after that a little bit and allowed some some travel within europe then we would have probably ended back in this same position anyway and again you when you come back to it you know Crossing borders, it, it sounds frivolous. You know, it, it's always painted 
in the media as you know influencers going off to Dubai, uh, you know, annoying people wanting to go to Spain when we've got a lovely coast here. But actually, the reason that people cross borders is to go and see sick family, is going to go and see family full stop, to go and see husbands and partners or, or, or relatives that, that that don't live in the same country as them. People cross borders because of work, for education, for all these other things, which which makes a lot of travel much more essential. So when you turn off that fully, you do stop a lot of other things. And for the UK, as it faces up to all sorts of Brexit ructions and people are being told to go and find new opportunities in the world and you can't literally go and find a new client for your business, then those things are frustrating as well. So I don't see it all as good. The reason we've got it is to control the variants. And even there, you know, it's interesting because, you know, there, there was there was a sense of panic about these new variants and their, their spread and how many more variants there would be. But on the whole, we're seeing that even with the existing vaccines that we have, they either do work against most of the variants or they stop the most severe cases of illness and death. And that's the most important thing. So like Faye says, that everybody recognises that at some point you you get to this moment where you say, OK, everybody who is likely to get a serious illness because of age or because of underlying health conditions has been vaccinated the rest of society that may be amongst kids and things, we're going to let this travel around a little bit more and we won't panic because it won't be translated into hospital cases or to severe illness. It will become this thing that we live with. And that's the the, the moment we've just got to see when that arrives. You know, when, when, it, when will it be the point where people say, OK, there's enough people vaccinated. We just have to stop this this quarantine thing. We have to allow people to travel because whatever happens it it does need to happen again otherwise you know you're in in a situation where you know if you do it for for years and years you're like a a, a berlin or something where you divide families with a a wall not a a physical wall but you know a a wall of isolation and of, of legislation to stop people being together and i think psychologically it's quite different i don't know if you feel the same fernando but being you know not from this country and living here suddenly being told you cannot leave you feel trapped, even if you, even if I had no plans of, you know, going back in the next six months, in reality, to go to Portugal to see family, but suddenly you're told you cannot. And is this really weird, claustrophobic feeling, even if you hadn't, <laughs> I don't know if you can sympathize with that. Absolutely. And, and to be honest, you know, the UK has a big migrant population and not even just migrants. A lot of British people, they live abroad, you know, they always have a brother or sister mm. or, or parents, uh, they live abroad. And, and, and another thing that I get scared, again, I'll go back to Australia and New Zealand. I mean, they're two fairly wealthy, you know, countries. The population are not that large. I mean, I wonder if the whole world had the same measures as they did, if that would work, if you know what I mean. I think they almost had the privilege to to do that, and they did it amazingly well. I'm not taking, you know, the credit. Uh, but but I, I just don't think it's not sustainable for, for every single country to have exactly the same attitudes or when you have a case you basically lock down the whole country again uh, I'm sure a lot of accusers might disagree with me on that one but but do you know what I mean mm-hmm. and uh, Andrew just today we were hearing from the Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying that next week on the 22nd he will be basically announcing a decision on whether or not to extend a lockdown between the 8th uh, beyond the 8th of March um, are we now at a point where 
you know, if we're going to do this, we might as well be locked up for another couple of weeks or another month and just this be the last of it, uh, than to take the risk of what we did last year, that we kept going on and off being indoors and outdoors. So I think what Chris Smith was saying, and also when you listen to Boris, there's a determination that any easing is done once and you don't go backwards. I think they're they're going to be incredibly cautious. There's been a a change in the the tone of delivery from Downing Street, burnt by previous experience, also the departure of Dominic Cummings, which means there's a a calmer rhetoric that comes out of Downing Street. So we know that uh, on the 22nd, it looks like they'll announce on March 8th, schools can reopen. And then they will begin to unlock society. I think the interesting thing is, which... You know, what they're not saying is even this year they will unlock society. So what it looks like is we'll move back into what here in the UK was called the tier system. We'll probably be national, though. We'll probably be in like a, a tier one or a tier two come summer. Now, you have to remember that even in tier one, you, there are, you can't go to a football match. You, you can't have a large wedding. You, you, you can't have a party. You're still encouraged to do social distancing in, in most situations, certainly in, in public houses and places like that. So I've got a feeling that's for the year. I don't, I don't see the, the return to mass gatherings before, much before the end of the year. So let's remember that even when we talk about the reopening, we've got so used to what open looks like being really not that open at all, that it's not going to be the old days. The old days will be, maybe be next year, but I don't think they'll be this year. I don't even remember what the old days used to look like. That's that's the danger of this all. Well, let's stay slightly on the topic of lockdowns for our second uh, topic here, because many are starting to wonder what life would look like when we're finally allowed out, not back to normal, as we were just talking about, but just slightly allowed out, uh, particularly when it comes to hospitality and retail. Andrew, this is based off a story you spotted on this weekend's edition of the Financial Times. And it basically argues that, you know, the collapse of some of Britain's biggest uh, department stores could allow for a conversation on repurposing these buildings. Tell us a bit more about it. Well, I don't think they're going to have any choice. They're going to, they're going to, <laughs> <laughs> you, if you look at a street like Oxford Street, which is you know, touted often as a, a premier retail street, but which has, in truth, staggered along for, for decades with problems. At one end, you have like an anchor tenant like Selfridges, super successful in normal times, very good at knowing what its community is, looking after people. And then you have the kind of retail often that you'd find in any high street around the country, you know, the the gaps of this world, for example. There are a few pockets of good things. And, and then traditionally, as you went the other end, which is what we'd call the Tottenham Court Road end, you, you ran into all these terrible kind of like cheap, awful stores. Again, they've, they've tried to dress up over the years. So now you have hundreds of retail units with many anchor tenants gone, leaving empty department stores. So what can fill their space? So the options are that you you, you you keep the ground floor open, you cut it up, and you turn the upper floors into residential. It's just not the, the hunger for living on Oxford Street, I don't think. You you could potentially do that. In the past, you might have repurposed it as, as office space, unlikely to be a huge demand. But there will be a, re- a return to the office in in the in the coming years in an in an interesting way. Can you find other retailers to come in there? I think potentially some some people might want to take a space. But I think what's more likely is that we'll see existing trends accelerate. So we know that 
there's going to be a young generation in the city. Many people who are in their 30s and 40s are going out to the suburb, leaving the city. But those people won't have fun. So the kinds of things are, you know, uh, you turn them into great food halls where there's hundreds of like little pop-up restaurants. That would be good. That would also be good because it, it would help a, a, a class of people who have been who are entrepreneurs who have been pushed out of their their jobs to start something afresh, maybe with modest rents without taking on big space. Experience. This this report says that actually some of these department stores are being offered to companies who do trampolining or bungee jumping hmm. or pool halls, and they're saying that there's going to be a demand for fun, and I can see that happening. And I think that there is also a chance for you know department stores to rethink their model. Again, the department store, ever since the Victorian times, has been a place of entertainment. You've gone there to be enthralled, to see new things, to have experiences. And that's always kind of ticks along. This experiential notion of department stores has ticked along again a bit in recent times. But you can imagine that, you know... Instead of just having a boring cafe, why not at six six o'clock it become a nightclub or something? Why why can't you have, you know, uh, bands playing in these spaces? You know, bands are being pushed out. You know, could could you have live music venues mixed in with retail? That you have movable spaces. I think that's that's going to be the the challenge for these places. How to become multifunctional. But the other thing is to cut them up and make smaller units and let people come in on cheaper rents. Do you think it's um, incorrect to say that, you know, the demise of many of these spaces is purely down to the pandemic? Oh, definitely not. Uh, In fact, one of those brands that are not doing well, I mean, it's funny because I can say because I, I, I used to go there at least once a month to buy an oil blotting paper from a brand <laughs> you could only find at Debenhams. Uh, the saleswoman from Bulgaria, she was lovely, but the shop was so boring. I mean, it's not exciting at all. I mean, why would you go to Debenhams? Okay, I had a reason to buy my oil blotting paper. But I mean, for example, even Selfridges, I mean, to be honest, they, they have different things. They have pop-ups, they have new brands. They clearly are interacting with their customer. With Debenhams, I think people at the moment they have such a you know vast selection online and more interesting shops to go. So I think that there is there is a need for a rethink. I think people st- will still shop, uh, especially you know after the pandemic when the pandemic is over. But the shops they need to learn a little bit to be a bit more exciting. I mean you can't just have just a shop selling the products and without any kind of entertaining or, or, or more interaction with your customers. And I think Debenhams were a classic example of that. What would be uh, the necessary fun activity to drag both of you back into the department store? Fernando, you go first. I, I think food is always a good thing as well. And, and as Andrew said, that's a very good idea about live music. I mean, they can do kind of smaller concerts. I mean, even at Selfridges here, they have a cinema now, kind of a more luxurious uh, type of cinema. There's so many things to do, actually. And I think what's interesting at the moment is if you go here, you know, sorry for listeners around the world being so hyper-local, but if you're here in London, I went up to Primrose Hill walking the dog at the weekend to get, you get a great view over London. But Primrose Hill, you would not guess that anything was going wrong in the world. It's, it's super busy because it's got loads of coffee shops, loads of cake shops and, and places doing takeaway food. And people uh, are wandering these very nice streets. Uh, another colleague was saying that they were out in East London at London Fields at the weekend, and the same. It's like the bakers, the, the 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 wine shop, people going in and getting takeaway. Those places have done well. So I think if you can if you can move away from being big big chains and you can have a sense of ownership managers people who 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 are passionate about their business do individual things then i think that's going to be the 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 touch paper that gets all these places going 
Well, uh, finally today, some good news for cinema lovers. A new movie, Detective Chinatown 3, has been a huge success in the Chinese box office. Fernando, I know you have a lot to say about this, but first let's hear a clip. Well, Fernando, can you explain first what the hell was going on there? And second, why was this film so popular? Well, uh, this film, Detective Chinatown 3, of course, is the third part of the, of the very successful series. It's about two, you know, Chinese detectives. And they try to solve all sorts of mysteries. But it's quite funny as well. It's more kind of a comedy. It's, they're not like mm. that serious. Uh, and in the third part, they're going to Tokyo. And then they meet kind of some Japanese detectives, you know. So it, it is quite mad, actually, if you look at the trailer. I mean, I I would recommend uh, listeners to do that. But the interesting thing is, this weekend, the box office was $400 million for this film. That's a record-breaking number, Carlotta. And, and it's interesting because the Chinese cinemas at the moment, there's a cap of 75% of the seats. And I think in some cities, it's even 50%. So even with those restrictions, look at the numbers. Uh, so it's quite impressive that when people are allowed to go to the cinemas, they probably will go back. And the story here is not only China. Uh, you see in South Korea, in Japan. Uh, yeah, I have to say mainly in Asia here. Uh, but the numbers are, are doing very, very well, actually. And uh, is this a good signal for, you know, whenever cinemas are able to reopen on this side of the world that will might see a similar bounce back of the box office? You need to have one or two uh, big blockbusters that are talismans of change because the interesting thing about the Bond movie is being moved so many times. People know that it's not aired because times are bad. So the minute it airs, it will be a signal to people that things are changing, that we're, we're, we're coming back together. And I think that people will then go back to the cinema. It's going to be very hard to get people back for kind of the, the B-list films that have made it out through the networks at the moment. So once that happens, then there'll be, as they say, bums back in seats. No, and I agree because you need the buzz, you know, because this film, The Taxi of Chinatown 3, was supposed to be released last year at the same period. But then, of course, cinemas were closed. So people, they were like dying to see it, you know. So I think the same thing will happen with Bond, probably. Well, and hopefully we'll all be able to discuss it in a few months uh, from now. Uh, Andrew and Fernando, thank you both for joining me today. That's all for today's late edition. And our thanks as well to our studio managers, Steph Chungo and Sam MP. I'm Carlotta Rebello here in London. The late edition is back at the same time tomorrow.